Sarah had to go on and leave me. Um, if, if, you ha- if you wonder what a deacon is, a deacon, really the only difference is I have to wear my thing sideways. So, <laughs> and then the other thing that I probably shouldn't tell you is that because a deacon means servant, like if you need to help, help with something moved or whatever, you can call me and I can't say no. So, um, but uh, I'm a little rusty. I haven't preached in a long time. Uh, and this is my first time in the mask era. So that's a little bit of a different thing. I can't see your faces, so I'm going to be looking at your eyes. Um, that might be a good thing. Um, <laughs> I remember I, thinking of the mask. I was thinking of my cousin when we were little. And he was sticking his tongue out at my aunt. Like, not his mom, but our, our other aunt. And, uh, and she said, John, if I see you stick your tongue out at me again, you know, I'm going to whoop you. And uh, he goes, like that. <laughs> And so I was thinking, you know, <laughs> if you would nod when you agree so I know you're with me, and if you disagree, just stick your tongue out at me and I won't know. So, <laughs> so when I looked at the passage that Peter gave me today that we're at in Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21, the first word that came to my mind was hodgepodge. It just seems like there's a hodgepodge of things going on here. There's deep stuff like zeal for God, prayer, hope love, abhorring evil, clinging to good. And there's practical stuff, like getting into each other's physical needs in a community, sharing hospitality, dealing with enemies, learning how to retaliate or not to retaliate. Um, I, for those of you the, uh, that were part of Christchurch before Church of the Cross was uh, started, you may uh, still be on Christchurch newsletter list. And every once in a while, Cliff um, sends out uh, his weekly e-news, and I don't know if he just didn't think of anything good to say or whatever, but he'll just call it Hodgepodge Friday every once in a while. So I was thinking, is this kind of feels like Hodgepodge Friday in a way, and how do you preach this? And thanks so much, Peter, for giving me this passage, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but, I, but I don't believe that it is Hodgepodge Friday or Hodgepodge Sunday in this case. In fact, the very first words of our passage that say, like, let love be sincere, there's actually not even a verb there. It's just sincere love. And like the commentators are like, yeah, probably using it as a verb, let love be sincere, let love be unhypocritical, probably is the title of the email today. So join with me to pray as we look into this passage. Lord, um, as in the psalm we read today, um, let my words be pleasing to you. And Lord, let the meditations of our heart as a community, our thoughts, our reflections and our responses be, um, be honoring to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Um, one of the things, so, so Peter had mentioned a couple weeks ago that we shifted in Romans from this like real theological section of chapters one through eight, and then this practical racial questions that developed in chapters nine through 11 to another real practical kind of life together uh, section of the book so that there's all of a sudden instead of all these like just declarative sentences there's all these imperative uh, commands that the vision that Paul had from that theological basis to be embodied in a community would require commands to us directions to us and uh, if you're like me and you come from maybe like a background with some of the more fundamental elements of, of, of the 20th century in your background there may be some resistance to any kind of commands in the Bible they're like, oh, aren't we supposed to be free? Isn't that legalistic? Um, Doug Moo, the, the commentator that I leaned on a lot for this, he had a great illustration about the need for commands. 
as opposed to in just an internalized kind of like general rule of thumb of love. He said that it's a lot like the guiding system in an airplane, that yes, it's supposed to be internalized and it's supposed to guide us to the right uh, place and guide us through the storms. But pilots also have visuals. They also have markers on the runway, beacons, things that give them a sense in the storm that yes, this, the, the, the internal checks, the internal engines and systems are right on. And so in this, in this passage, we see both. We see commands to love with zeal, to rejoice in hope, to have a hope that actually generates joy, sort of a, that directional system of hope looking forward, that we are supposed to be continuously praying. Those internal systems are supposed to be in check. But there's also some markers of just things on the runway, things that we can use in our visibles as we look around our community and around our life. The very first thing that he gets into is the sticky moral world. He commands love sincerely. How do we do that? Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do those two things at the same time. Abhor evil. Cling to what is good. That's not easy. That's not easy today. Do you feel that sometimes you're like, oh, I'm abhorring something, and as I'm abhorring that, I'm also letting go of something good at the same time? Or I'm trying to cling to something good, and it's like, oh, man, while I'm clinging to that good thing, I feel like I'm also accepting something evil, you know? One of the things that I think we can see easily in the passage is that for Paul, this is not an abstracted idea of what is good and evil. It's not really a vote. It's not really a Facebook thing. It's not a tweet. It's embodied in a community. We see that Paul wants this genuine love to be expressed in a human context, in the context of the church. And actually, he's a little bit back and forth throughout the passage, focusing once on the, the community of the church and then on the, our, the presence of the church in the broader community in the world. And there's a lot of complexity there. One of the things that he gets into in this next verse, after abhor evil, cling to good, maybe gives us some guide or some foundation which we can give us a footing for how to do that. He says, to honor one another. To honor one another. In fact, to outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. If I had a dime for every time in the last five years that I've heard somebody say that they basically lost respect for a brother or sister or a family member who has diverged with them on a viewpoint issue, I think I'd be, I'd be wealthier than I am now. I don't know how wealthy I'd be, but politics, race, vaccines, masks, hot issues, hot takes on hot issues that divide. And then People want to push those opinions out into the public sphere, kind of disembodied from real life. Not as likely to bring it up in person, but to push it out into the blogosphere, into the social media, in a way that causes reactions in us that make us want to lose respect. But here, here Paul says, don't lose that respect. Outdo one another in showing honor. This estrangement that we feel, this loss of respect, how do we reclaim it? 
You know, the very fact that right in here, it says like, it says to look at the brotherly love that we share. There's these family images there. It makes me think of the Lord's Prayer. The very first two words. What are the first two words? Our Father. Our Father. Those two words. You just take those two words and we could just unpack those two words and all of the implications that they have for us and for our lives. What do they imply? It implies we share a relationship with God as Father. That is reinterpreted and re-identified and re-infused with meaning our relationships with each other. And this is where I think the Western world can be a bit of a failure for us, that our Western, our Western value systems lean very heavily, very heavily on, what, um, what, on a value that is achieved, not ascribed. So where did you study? What do you do? Within that context, what have you done? Where are you heading? All of that achieved value that's really disconnected. Very rarely are you asked, what does your father do, you know? What is your lineage? But in the Eastern world, in the world of the Bible, value is primarily ascribed, ascribed at birth. That's why the the Bible is so rich with family stories. So in that, we share an ascribed, ascribed value that we can honor people even when they've diverged from us on whatever the hot issue is of the day. We can, in fact, when we don't honor them, when we dishonor them, we're doing something. We're changing the calculation of how we say that value is ascribed, our value is obtained. I'm now no longer looking at you as somebody who is endued with value because of who created you and who saved you and what family we share with one another. I don't know if any of you watched the, uh, um, the funeral um, uh, in England for the queen, but uh, the awkwardness of the two princes walking down, um, I mean, of, of the, of, uh, pr- what is it, the, not the queen, prince. Prince Philip. Prince Philip, sorry. It's like, wait, she's still alive. She's still alive. I told you I'm rusty, so... All right, she's still alive, sorry. We are Anglican, we should know these things. Yeah. There's, there was this like really painful thing. It was just kind of like on in our house as we were going about our day on that Saturday. And there was, but there's this really painful thing of seeing that estrangement, that whatever the entanglement was, and I don't read People Magazine, so I don't know all the details. Whatever that was, was enough that they didn't want to walk next to each other and that some, somebody figured out, stick somebody in between them, you know? Um, and, you know, there was a sense of maybe like loss in that community, that like what should be kind of bedrock for honor and bringing together has been lost over some scuffle, some conflict. It's not easy to do this. I know that it's hard for a lot of us to find that footing to honor and um, respect other brothers and sisters, especially when we feel like what they've clung onto and what they've abhorred are wrong, a wrong package. So we need the Lord's wisdom in this. I mean, one tip that I thought of actually on the way over here, and I had to take a risk with bringing this narrative into this from the Bible, um, but just maybe this is just like a tip that we could take. In that, there's a place where honor and shame is really, really hot in Genesis, and that's when Noah gets drunk and has a very, you know, you know, indiscriminate uh, episode. You know, he seemed to have lost his clothes in the whole thing, 
And one brother goes and like exploits that and the other two brothers come in and they actually walk in backwards and they don't want to exploit that dishonoring thing. They want to hold that honor and, uh, for their father. And so to, uh, maybe some of the tip would just be like, when somebody disagrees with us in this like uh, clinging and abhorring combo and we see that as being them losing their honor, that we don't necessarily just focus on that in them, that we look for something more foundational that we can share with them. Um, so just because we honor, just because we've been called to love, doesn't mean that we give up on this task of working out this like, how do we abhor evil? How do we cling to what is good? We don't give up on it at all. In fact, we double down in that space. Because we honor the dignity of each other and of the community and of ourselves, we move as best we can into that place of working through this moral tangle. I want to resurrect like some old cliches today, Christian cliches. I think that here it'd be very fitting to say, love the sinner and hate the sin, you know? Love the sinner and hate the sin. Um, I was thinking about this idea of abhorring, of having just kind of like a visceral reaction to something that's harmful to me or to somebody else or to a community. And the best thing I could come up with, and I think this is safe for this room, is just smoking. That I have just an abhorrence for it. I mean, we lived overseas a lot where it was kind of like living in an episode of Mad Men where there was just like smoking going on all the time. And it just really made us sick. Beyond that, I grew up back in the 70s, I'm old enough, to, uh, there were always ashtrays around the home. There was always secondhand smoke moving around. And eventually that would kill my mom. She quit in her 80s, but she died of lung cancer. So my hatred for smoking is deep, you know? But, and, the, and there are people who I love today who are addicted to cigarettes. Um, but do, I don't just blow them away because I abhor cigarettes. I love them, I cling to them, there are sometimes opportunities for me to try to help them or to encourage them out of that. One of my nephews, uh, who's totally broke, I actually give him like money challenges to quit smoking, you know, and see how long he can go. I've never had to pay out, but he'll go for a while and then he'll, he'll be back at it. Um, and there's all this, we could pull on that thread, that image of smoking as this like harmful, abhorrent thing, you know, it's kind of safe for us to talk about it. I don't see a lot of people smoking in the parking lot after church, but you know, um, you know, but there's this effect, this public health effect too, to this thing. There's community health, you know, what my mom did probably affected me, you know, because it was like all around the house. I remember, we won't pull too much further on this, but I had to throw this in that I remember when we were living overseas at one point, Lisa had to go in for a uh, obligatory uh, health check. And that health check um, included a lung x-ray, okay? And so everybody that was gonna get a residency permit to live in this country had to get the health check. And, um, and so there she was, and she's like, well, I know this is fine, well, I'll just do it. This x-ray is probably doing more harm to my lungs than helping me or whatever. But, but in that Mad Men-esque kind of like world, the x-ray, the, the lung doctor x-ray technician lit up a cigarette in the room and smoked in the room while Lisa was getting the x-ray. They was like, well, my lungs were fine before I got in here, but there's some questions now. Maybe run that x-ray one more time. That, that sort of distant, humorous, unthinkable almost like image is what we want to avoid in our community. You know, that this is a place where 
we don't light up in each other's presence, you know, um, with sin, but we hate it. We abhor it, and yet we cling to what is good. So this sincere love has those elements based on honor, moving into loving, loving sinners and hating sin, and it pushes out in some real practical ways. Um, at the, I think it's in verse 13, Paul says that we should seek out hospitality. The word for hospitality is basically the opposite of xenophobia. It's like, well, it's like xenophilia, but it's, but the, it's flipped around. But it's, it's the love of strangers. And he says to seek it out. The opposite of xenophobia is not voting for the pro-immigration person. That may be one distant, like, application. But for Paul, it's sharing tables, sharing space. Before that, he says, meeting the needs of the saints. They think that was probably like a saint community that was in another city. That you are entangled. That your life is entangled. And that, like he says, he says, you seek it out. You seek it out. Even hospitality amongst ourselves in a place like Austin. I mean, I have shared so many conversations bemoaning how difficult it is to do community in a context like this. You know, the traffic, the fact that we don't all live in one neighborhood, you know. Um, If you add kids that have actual bedtimes, you know, to that, like it makes it very difficult to practice hospitality. Makes it really difficult. And yet, I know I have a renewed um, desire to lean into that pay that cost to shoot for that benefit and that we have a, um, a desire as a community. I know that desire is there for us to lean into that. But it's not just within ourselves. It's also to the strangers, to those that have nothing to pay us back. And in a lot of ways, that whole thing of ascribed value, that like when I honor, when I bow to someone in honor, that I am saying we share an ascribed value, that same thing is happening whenever I share a table with somebody when I sign up to help with Afghan refugees that are on their way to Austin. Um, and I know many of you have. We need on-ramps into these things. Our society has siloed us and insulated us in a way that makes it really difficult to actually build relationships, especially outside of our circles. So we need to pursue those things. Paul says, seek it out. Seek out hospitality. The... the, the passage moves on towards verse 17 and 18, you see this kind of entanglement that he's encouraging us to with, uh, with people inside and outside the community. Then there's this sense that that doesn't always go well, that there's conflict that can happen, especially if we take our uh, task of loving sincerely, of abhorring evil and clinging to good, and we move out into the broader world. So it's not only a complex holding to evil and good, do that in real community, and even do that in the world. It's really interesting, these passages where he says, you know, best as is possible for you, be at peace in the world. He says at one point, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So this isn't like evil, you know, hate evil, cling to good, and do that in like kind of a loud culture war sort of way, but do it embedded in real relationships And as much as is possible, be at peace and do things that actually outside the church is honored. Do your best to do that. Now, it's 
seems clear that that's not always possible, right? Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have the persecution problems that he says would come along, you know, the conflicts. And he wouldn't have to qualify it with, by saying, hey, as much as possible, pull this off. I think that we're actually pretty good at being tuned in, actually, to the world around us. I mean, we're a younger, urban, a professional. We're, we are embedded in communities around us. And there's a bit of awareness of how maybe the church comes across, you know. And, there, and, and so that thoughtfulness is there. But that's hemmed in. You see earlier in the passage where he just says, serve the Lord. So we're tuned in. We do everything we can to be honoring. But at the end of the day, we serve the Lord. How do we do that? This tanglement of evil, clinging to good, abhorring evil, doing that in a real context, serving the Lord while being thoughtful about how to be out in the world. So I want to give you an example from uh, another one of my foreign uh, adventures that, um, that I think of people who I've always remembered have did this well. And it's a people group that I had never heard of, and honestly, I'd never heard of them since. I was in the country of Indonesia for a summer, and uh, the guy I was with said, hey, let's go do some mountain climbing, let's go do some, you know, looking around the country. And so we went out to this remote part of the island of Java, and there was a mountain on that, um, there was a mountain uh, there that had a people group that lived at the top of the mountain. They were called the Tinger people, or they all are called the Tinger people. And we met a man who had been a missionary to the Tinger people. For eight years, he went up, to the, up the mountain, and the mountain actually didn't have roads. It had motorcycle trails, and it didn't have electricity. They had to either use like a generator. Well, gen- they didn't really use generators because it was hard to get the gas up there. They would use mopeds or motorcycles and bring batteries down and charge them down in like the cities and then bring those things back up. They had like an exchange program. So that's how remote this place was. Um, so I went up there with this missionary who had been there. He was a local missionary, an Indonesian guy. For eight years, he administered to them, and he finally saw some people come to faith. So we went and visited those believers. And one of the things just I'll never forget about these people is they were very, very short. So when I went into their homes, it was literally like Gandalf and Frodo or whatever. Like I could not stand up all the way in their houses. And the bedroom that I had that night, I remember, was actually not long enough for my body and so I had to have my legs up on the wall. This was really remote. This is like the uttermost parts of the earth. You get it. Um, so the, but the Tinker people, the believers that were there, there were, there were some believers. They told us, this, they started telling us about how it was that they came to faith. They were a Hindu people. So there were gods and all types of idols and things and festivals that went with that. And when they accepted the gospel, the few families cut off all of the festivals all that idol worship stuff was done. They didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. They abhorred what was evil. And so they pulled back. And guess what? They started to be looked at not very well within the community. So they lost relationships with people. Everybody saw them as the worst tingers in town, basically. You know? And some of that was probably unavoidable. You know? There was a conflict that came. But they told us that after a while they were challenged by this missionary, let's go back and do what we can, look through the festivals and all the things that you've left behind and see what's maybe even good in those festivals and see if we can sort out, filter through what's evil and what is good and cling to some of the good things. And so they did. They went back and said, you know, 
this festival, though it worships this God in this way, afterwards, really a big part of the day is just like enjoying hospitality with one another and being generous and sharing food and whatnot. And so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to like always be 45 minutes late or an hour late to this thing. And you know what, and you know what we're going to do on the good things that we can do? We are going to double down. And so they became known as the most generous tingers, the ones that like to kind of party the most, you know, uh, of all the tinger people. And um, they would bring more food than anybody else. They sacrificed more. They stayed out later. They took the parts that were good in the society, and they met the community in that space. And it was this just beautiful thing. And guess what happened? Other tinger people started to come to faith. They started to see, like, hey... We, uh, we want to be part of this group now. It's complicated. We want to be aware. We want to be thoughtful. But we serve the Lord, it says here in the passage. That's the other cliche I want to pull back. Serve the Lord. Jesus is Lord. I serve the Lord ultimately, and I'm thoughtful about how I live in community. I love sincerely in the community, but I serve one God. I serve the Lord. Jesus is Lord. I mean, it's, I think about how, where do I see that? I only see that like on like signs in rural Texas, you know, like up, you know. And I'm always conflicted when I see something like that. Jesus is Lord on a billboard, you know, maybe too close to a political sign as well, you know. Um, I'm conflicted. But what I don't want Satan to do is say, yeah, yeah, no, Jesus is not Lord, you know, somewhere in my heart. I want to maybe say, I want to be at a place where I could go up to that farmer or whoever and be like, high five, Jesus is Lord. You know, I honor that. You know, now let's talk about your branding maybe a little bit. And, uh, you know, let's be a little bit more thoughtful, you know, and how we're doing this. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is calling us, Church of the Cross, to a sincere love. He's calling us to not give up on the complexity of how do we abhor evil and cling to good at the same time in all of the complex situations in the world around us. He's calling us to do that in a way that is embodied in community, both here, us, and Austin, you know, and Texas. He's calling us to live with honor towards other people, especially to other believers. He's calling us to do a hard thing. I can get discouraged sometimes when I read the New Testament because I go, where is all of this in our lives, you know? And man, you know, well, they weren't hypocritical in Romans, but we are now. But that's actually a really bad way of reading the New Testament. Um, if you read Gordon Fee's, uh, Stuart and Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, he says this great thing about how to read an epistle. When you're reading an epistle like Romans, you're basically listening to one side of a telephone conversation. And so you're hearing what Paul is saying to them, and you have to kind of infer back what's going on there, right? And he's not saying, y'all are so amazing at sincere love, you know? Y'all are so amazing at being thoughtful, He's saying, be that, you know? And so I guess, one, I'm encouraged that, like, it's not like, oh, well, they had it down and we don't, you know? But at a much larger thing, I think, you know, this whole Romans thing that we're doing, this is what God is doing. This is where we're heading, you know? When it says rejoice in hope, 
you know, and you're discouraged maybe about the state of the American church or the state of the, you know, whatever, this is where it's heading. And I don't have time really to deal with some of the stuff on retaliation where, um, you know, there's a bunch of good stuff in there. But the one thing that I wanted to say, if I did have time, was that when he says, like, don't retaliate because the Lord is judge, you know, the thing that I was thinking of was the Afghan situation and how I heard a general say, well, the Taliban won because of their patience, you know. In fact, the Taliban were known to have said, the Americans have all the watches, we have the time. And I was thinking about that for our, our community, for the Christian community, that we can hold back in judgment somewhat, not only towards others around us, but even towards ourselves, that God is patient. You know, we have watches. We live in political cycles. We live in a very fast media cycle. But God has the time. And to that end, like, let's pray and hope that and, and with resolve to, like, move into this sincere love. So join me in prayer. Lord, I just want to give space right now even for um, broken relationships around this thing of honoring those who we've, we are just entangled with because we were born into their families, our moms, our dads, our aunts, our uncles, our friends, those people from the church we used to go to in that other state. Um, Lord, help us to like find our value in being a family that you, Father, um, you are in heaven. We share you. And Lord, give us some footing there to actually do this work of of disentangling the evil and the good, that we can abhor some things and cling on to other things. Help us to double down on what's good. Double down on what's good in Austin, what we can share with our neighbors, with people we work with in this community. And Lord, give us just a a power to... um, to have a a visceral reaction towards what is harmful. Um, Lord, I thank you for the Tinger people. I pray that they have, um, they continue in their um, quest to do this thing as we do it here in Austin. Thank you for their example. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.